Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, January 15th, 2024, and we're on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebrich with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Eero, and this week we're getting to talk about the only extant member of the genus Deltistes. It's the Lost River Sucker. We are very happy to welcome our two guests. Don Gentry is a natural resources specialist with the Klamath Tribes. Jane Spangler is a sucker recovery biologist with our Klamath Falls Fish and Wildlife Office. Very warm welcome to both of you. Appreciate you yeah. coming on. Thanks for having Thank us. You. I noticed that there was the indigenous name for this fish. And in my intro there, I didn't want to give it a shot because I knew I'd butcher it. But real quick, what, what is the name of this fish? Twom. Twom. Am I saying that right? Yeah. It's like a T and C together. Twom. Twom. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. There's another species also that's endangered. That's the Compton. That's the short nose sucker. So there's two species listed. Yeah. How do you spell that, Don? The way I've seen it spelled different ways, but C apostrophe W A M. And I've seen it W A M. So Twom. That's the way the elders mm-hmm. would say it. Twom, like that. And okay. up to like that. is the short nose sucker. It's the smaller one with the lighter under underside belly. But the arm is the large of the three species that live in Klamath Lake. Uh, there's a lost river, short nose, and there's also large scale that live in Klamath Lake. Ooh, we're going to have to cover those as well. That's cool. <laughs> Getting us ready for season five here. Can one or both of you help us imagine what it would be like to see and hold one of these suckers in your hands? So size-wise, texture, just we've never seen this fish before. What are we looking at? I had an opportunity to handle the fish quite a bit. I'm 68 years old. I moved back home in 1969 to love my father, who's Klamath and Modoc. My mom was non-native. And so I moved back to live with my father after my parents divorced. And my dad was an avid fisherman. We caught the suckers. I took suckers to Elder. And also in my job capacity in the Klamath Tribes as a natural resources specialist, we did some capture-recapture population estimates at mm-hmm. Sucker Springs, which is the, the traditional uh, uh, legendary uh, creation site of the Chuam along the east side of Klamath Lake. The Lost River are the largest of the fish. And I've seen, seen them up to nearly 15 pounds or so. The males and females are a little bit different. Typically, the females are larger. And when they're in spawning condition, they have these bumps, these tubercles. Mm-hmm. All over. You can feel those when you hold the fish. They're beautiful if you've ever seen the photos. They look pretty prehistoric, pretty ancient. Yeah. They're wonderful fish and large fish and really important part of our subsistence and culture. They're the first fish that came up in the springtime to provide protein and oils for our people after a tough winter. Yeah. I'm wondering if there's any creation stories that you could relate, associate with this fish. Like when we had the Pacific lamprey, we featured that fish. Some folks from the Coeur d'Alene described that story, and I yeah. thought that was really interesting. So the if first thing like- I can share the story. I'm not a legend teller. But if you can imagine Klamath Lake, we have the Cascade Mountains to the east. In Klamath Lake, one of the largest lakes west of the Mississippi, a large lake in Oregon, miles across. But on the east side of the lake, there's a rim called Modoc Rim. And our people call it that Nathlocks, which is late sunrising place. We had villages all on the village site all along the east side of the lake. And if the rim is on the east side of the lake and that villages are below, the sun comes up late in those places. 
the legend, the creation story goes, our people were living in a real a time of famine and really having difficulty catching the fish, picking the berries. There's island wild plum, elderberries. There's roots in some of the uh, metal systems up above, near locks. And mm-hmm. catch, and we rely really heavily on fish and, and waterfowl and so forth. But we were having a tough time gathering our foods. But we were also plagued by this large snake-like creature that was described to be about three and a half, four foot tall. It was tormenting our people going around the villages on the east side of the lake and killing and eating our people. And our people were praying to creator, Kabulgumps, as the creator being, which translates old man of the ancient times. So we were praying and asking creator to help us in this time uh, to meet our needs with uh, the foods and our resources, but also because of this snake that was tormenting and eating our people along the villages. So we prayed to him. Then from the top of Nalok's Modok Rim, our late sunrising place, that rim, Kumukum's creator heard our prayers and came down and confronted that creature. And uh, he took his obsidian knife after wrestling with that creature, cut the, the creature up into thousands of pieces, and he flung the flesh of that uh, creature into the lake. And as the flesh hit the water, it turned into their chuam, the yen the cup did. So the story has it. That's the east side of Klamath Lake. If you come by in the wintertime when the lake is freezing, often that lake doesn't freeze in that particular point because that's where the springs are, that sucker mm-hmm. springs, they call it. And that's a significant spawning area. We have a population of Lost River suckers that spawn in that area. But that's how the story goes. And also, in the creation story, as long as the fish survive, the people survive. Wow. Thank you That's for sharing cool. that. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. The message, underlying message is the creator cares for us. And he can even turn bad things into good things for, for our people. And it sounds like the people and the fish are very connected and their futures are tied together. I know this is a long-lived fish, and I'm wondering if this sucker were to have its best life, what would that look like in terms of kind of year-to-year decade to decade, what is this fish doing and what does it need to survive? What kind of habitats? So I know that the um, oldest specimen was 57 years old and that the ones that we currently have in the lake are 30 to 40 years old. So they're definitely uh, nearing that end of their life. They are long-lived fish and uh, uh, they need to be, from my understanding, about uh, seven or eight years old before they can actually spawn uh, successfully. And they, they live in the Klamath Lake, and actually they've been distributed into Tule Lake and, and uh, some of the other lakes in the area here. What we have is a remnant of the older, larger Modoc Lake that uh, receded. The Tuam, they live in the Klamath Lake, and they come up and they spawn in the tributaries, come up through the sprig or Williamson River, and it turns into the sprig. So they spawn in the sprig and in Williamson River in the springtime. When the swam came up, the Koptu came up, and also the large scale would come up and spawn. It came in different times, but staggered, but they would spawn in the same areas. And that's when our people had the opportunity to catch the fish. Okay. And they are long-lived. Unfortunately, we have very little recruitment. If it wasn't for the fact that the fish are long-lived, 
the fish would be gone. Uh, uh, I don't know the ages exactly. If, uh, I know they've looked at the opercules, the gill plates of the fish, and they can age the fish, similar like looking at a tree and counting the tree rings. So they've been able to age the fish. I think the promised, the longest lived of the fish. And then there's the short nose and the large scale. Yeah. 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 Is there anything else that they really need that was available in the past that has been maybe degraded now? I'm just, yeah, understanding yeah. ideally what they had and what made them survive. I think one of the biggest things was that diking and draining of the fringe wetlands around the lake. It's likely so had ecosystem function for water quality, as well yeah. as providing cover and habitat and food for larvae and juveniles. So not having that is probably leading to some of this lack of recruitment into the adult population. So wetlands were a big part of what they needed. Fringe wetlands around the lake. There's an estimate that about 75% of the fringe wetlands around the lake were diked and drained. And it also provided cover from predators, food source. And it also, the wetlands did affect water quality. They've used available nutrients in the water column. And that's part of the reason why we have all the problems. We have poor water quality because of the nutrients that have come into the lake. Phosphorus is the primary nutrient that's came in. But also in the streams and the tributaries, unfortunately, we've eroded and increased sediment load into the Klamath Lake and into the water column. Plus, we have significant cattle raising in the Wood River Valley, flood irrigation, and there's a runoff that comes in that has nutrients in it. So... It's increased the phosphorus load, and also because the you know, uh, marshlands are nutrient-rich from just the, their development over time, when you dike and drain those areas and, and they flood in the winter and spring, and you pump the water out either for growing crops or uh, uh, f- pasture for cattle, you're pumping nutrient-laden water back into the Klamath Lake uh, from the actual uh, marshland. So, all those things contribute to the significant increase in nutrient load. Yeah, contributed to the annual algae blooms. We haven't had a measurable recruitment since about the early 90s. All the fish are very old. So the only fish that we have basically are the old fish. Oh, man. Are there any artificial propagation efforts to try to get fish past that initial larval stage and, and get them to where they might be able to re- recruit into the older population? Yeah, there's two different operations, somewhere the Klamath tribes and then the Fish and Wildlife Service. There's pretty successful spawning and migration down from the Sprague River and the Winston to the Winston River. But we're actually now, because of the concerns, spawning the fish out. We have a very low number of short notes suckers. Mm-hmm. So our folks know right where to net them. They go down to there's certain places that they spawn. They take lanterns and nets and actually capture the fish and, and spawn the fish out and, and rear the spots into the hatchery and uh, put them into the ponds. The whole intention is to try to grow them past a certain point where they're less susceptible to predation. Longer or larger fish have a better chance of survival. The water quality, that's uh, something that threatens all the fish, adults and juveniles. Yeah, and so the... Fish and Wildlife Service, we have the Klamath Falls National Fish Hatchery that was just designated as a national fish hatchery. And the Sucker Assisted Rearing Program, SARP is what you will hear people call this program. What we do basically is May 
through June, we're going out there and we're collecting those larvae as they're drifting down the Williamson, bringing them back into our hatchery, rearing them for a year and a half, two years until they're at least 200 millimeters before repatriating them to Upper Klamath Lake. How big are the larvae when you're collecting them when they're drifting? Uh, Yeah, the larvae that we collect are 10, 15 millimeters. They're very small. Some of them can be smaller than that as you're coming down. We go to the edges of the streams and you can see these schools of the larvae. So if it was Mm. just one or two, we likely wouldn't be able to see them there along the edges. But because they are coming down in this drift, we have that ability to collect them. Are the species mixing together at all, or is it all just the chwam, or are there the other two suckers as well in there? Yeah, there's chwam, there's koptu, and there is the Klamath large-scale sucker. Why doesn't the Klamath large-scale have a, a, a traditional name? Does it? Yen. That's the <laughs> traditional name. Yen. Okay. That's a new yen. one to me. I love yen. knowing that. Yen. Okay, cool. Yeah. You know, they're not in such serious condition because there's river residents that live in the river all year. Mm. And they're even found in the Upper Winston River, which is basically isolated from the lower river because of the Kirk Canyon and their walks. Fish can't migrate up in, in there, but there is a resident population of uh, large scale. I believe there are even places like Miller Lake and some of the other lakes around. So they're not in the same kind of dire condition as the fish that live in the lake all year round. Stepping back just a minute, I'm just trying to get a feel for what how this system is with the lake and the rivers. How does the Lost River tie in? And could someone just describe this system where the Chwam are existing? And Tule Lake and the Lost River that came in from the east, uh, um, in fact, there was a lot of mixing, and uh, it, before they diked and drained, what's now called the Klamath Project area, Lower Klamath Lake and Tule Lake, that place was referred to as the Everglades of the West, diked and drained that, and really that had a significant impact on the interaction between Lost River and Klamath River and Tule Lake and, and uh, Lower Klamath Lake. Diking and drain that really separated things out. In fact, the Tule Lake is now nothing it's just a semblance of what it once was there's it just call it the truly lake sump i don't know how many acres it is compared to how it was historically but they diked and drained all that and so there's still some lost river and short nosed um suckers in that lake and then clear lake to the east but they used to interact significantly prior to the diking and the draining and that's part of the reason why they're called Lost River Suckers. They were in Lost River. Tule Lake was actually one of the locations that they believed the Lost River was in the greatest abundance and used mm-hmm. to spawn up the Lost River there. Now there's the Anderson Rose Dam, which only allows uh, fish to get up maybe seven miles upstream. Um, and so they're cut off from that spawning habitat. But um, this is a newer thing, Don, so I'm not sure if you'd heard, but Tule Lake had actually gone dry. And so it's just, it's being refilled now. Unfortunately, the population is no longer there, but there's hope that we could repeat, patriate in the future and reestablish that population. When did it go dry? In 2021, that sump started to go dry. In 2022, sump 1B, so there's sump 1A and sump 1B of Thule Lake, and sump 1A was dry. Sump 1B went dry in 2022. So then Thule Lake was was no longer wet at that point. Wow. But this past summer, it did start refilling again. 
And so there's some hope that we can keep the water level up in there. If we could go back in time, what did that fish community look like? How prevalent were these fish? And I'm curious what the fish community is like today and if there's any other species that have found their way into this system. Yeah, there were hundreds of thousands of adults. There's stories that I've heard where people said that they could walk across the back Mm -hmm. of the suckers because they were just so full in the stream. I know that in Upper Klamath Lake, before the snag fishery was closed, in the 60s, I believe they were catching tens of thousands of adult suckers. But by 1985, they were down to somewhere in the 600s. So they were catching much less fish within just a really short period of time. There have been non-native introductions. So we do have fathead minnow. We have yellow perch. Yeah, fatheads are everywhere. And of course, they can reproduce three times throughout the summer. And so Mm. it's just very hard to control them. They were introduced in the 70s, whereas yellow perch introduced sometime in the 30s. And both of those definitely would have an effect on the sucker, not only for predation, but also competition of the larvae. Jane, are you from this region originally? Come in no, later. I'm from the Ozarks, from the so Ozarks. southwest Missouri. <laughs> That's a gorgeous place, too. I'm curious, when you first got out into the Klamath area near Klamath Falls, what were your first impressions of the landscape and of this fish? Because it's very different than the Ozarks. Oh, absolutely. Honestly, coming out here, it was so vast. The range of this species was so spread out while it's very narrow when you're actually looking at it on this geographic scale when you're on the landscape it seems very vast and so really getting a sense of where these species were at making sure that i got on the land and actually went and saw where these species were spawning and reproducing was really important because I'm seeing what they're able to do. These areas uh, that they were spawning that I'm being shown are, some of them are just these little trickles almost. And so really just getting a sense of what the landscape is like now and having an idea of what it had been historically and just how much it's changed. That was big for me. Also, I'm from an area where the diversity of fish is enormous, 200 plus species. So coming here, I knew that it was going to be less diverse just because typically in these colder climates up here in the Northwest, I I knew that it was going to be a lot less uh, species diversity. So coming out here and seeing how many of the blue and the Tui chub, uh, which are native and have historically been with these species, it was interesting to see how many there are of them and how few Mm. there are of these sucker species. So just a lot of dichotomies. I love your job title. It's probably one of the coolest ones I've seen, sucker recovery biologist. (laughs) What is your kind of scope of work and what does your office do within the realm of recovering the sucker? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm on the sucker recovery team. I work very closely with the Klamath Falls National Fish Hatchery So the Klamath Falls National Fish Hatchery and the Sucker Recovery Team are under the same umbrella. And we're using the revised recovery plan for Lost River and Short-Nosed Suckers to go through recovery actions and decide where our focus needs to be as far as trying to recover this species. And that's how we came to the point of actually starting this fish hatchery. 
in 2016, it was really deemed that this was going to be necessary to bolster the population while we work on landscape-wide restoration, water quality improvements, things like that. We work very close with the Klamath tribes. Most of what we do, we really don't move forward without addressing it with the Klamath tribes because this is a cultural species. Our main efforts are to enact those recovery actions in collaboration with our partners, make sure that we're focusing in the places where there is the most need at this point. And so right now, having that hatchery as our greatest tool is really one of the best things that we're doing in our toolbox for recovery actions while we're working on these other projects. But the Klamath Falls fish hatchery, that would be one of the the main things that we're focused on and just developing the captive propagation program. We haven't talked about any fish from the Klamath watershed, to my knowledge, on this show. And it is pretty cool. I want, I want to talk a little bit more about that because it's this major watershed that's above the Sacramento and below the Columbia. And you get kind of these endemic species, not just these suckers, but lampreys and stuff like that. So what are some of the other special fishes that occur in this watershed? Down in the lower part of the Klamath River, of course, now, <laughs> because of the dams that were put in, we have coho and Chinook salmon that come up and they intercept them now at the Iron Gate hatchery and spawn and rear those fish there. But they came and spawned clear up into the headwaters here. We're out in the upper part of the Cloud Basin watershed where water flows out of the ground at about 42 degrees and numerous places like Spring Creek and Crooked Creek there at Kimball Park where it just flows out of the ground and starts the Wood River or Fork Creek or Spring Creek, Williamson River. We're at the very headwaters up the part of the Klamath watershed. So we have uh, a native red band trout, mayhaus. We have populations that spawn in, in, in different places every year. And you can see physical differences on the fish that spawn in Spring Creek versus some of the uh, spawning areas up in Leo Springs, Comcan Springs, other places. So the uh, subpopulations of the same species that are uh, genetically a little bit different. And actually, that's the same name that we had for what we suspect was the steelhead that no longer come up because of the dam that they put mm-hmm. in fish ladders at the turn of the century. So we haven't had salmon and steelhead up here. Chials is the climate bank for salmon. And uh, so we're still so thankful at the long efforts of many folks. Uh, the dams are finally coming out. The first one, the smaller dam, came out uh, last year. And the three more lower river dams are going to be removed so we can get salmon back up into this mm-hmm. area. But they're facing significant water quality problems uh, that we're going to need to address to really have viable returns and uh, natural spawning fish. We also have bull trout up in some of the upper headwaters up along Earhart Mountain. Unfortunately, after the Boot Lake fire burned into the area, there was a significant impact on the bull trout populations mm-hmm. over off Winter Rim and, and Gearhart. But there's still a significant population in Long Creek. We have Klamath speckled dace that's unique to the basin, blue chub, jub. We have sturgeon that were introduced into the lake. There are maybe mm. a few that are still uh, surviving. We also have Jerwin brown that are introduced to the system, and eastern brook trout are brought mm. in here. So they're non-native species. Uh, and unfortunately, we have bass now that people have put into the spray system. We have the Klamath lamprey that's unique to this area. 
that are fairly small, what I've seen, but we had a larger lamprey that would come up and our people would catch and, and eat as for subsistence. Sounds like a cool community of fish. We have but, a yeah. small scale sucker too in Deming Creek down on the Klamath River. So that's a unique fish. And actually we have, there's names, Klamath names for fish that, we, that are likely no longer here. There was a fish that was in the which is a tributary to the South Fork Sprague River. People referred to a fish that is no longer uh, seen, similar to the small scale, but we have fish called histis. People don't know what that is nowadays. It's no longer here. Mm-hmm. Every time I meet with some of the elders, unfortunately, a lot of them are gone. My father and some of the mm-hmm. noted fishermen would talk about some of the unique fish that they're worried and not sure if they're even here anymore. That's too bad. That's too bad. Sounds like it was really, yeah, a really cool community. Ong everybody, it's Maria with Minute with Maria. Learning about the Chuam or Lost River Sucker of the Klamath region really makes my heart ache. I want to take a quick moment out of my minute to remember those good times when this fish was really prosperous and we were able to share it around the table and at potlucks. With my heartache, however, there's also hope. Hope that the wetland habitat surrounding the Klamath can recover to habitual levels for this fish not to just survive, but thrive once again. I have hope that the trauma once again flourish for the sake of the people and for the ecosystem. And I also hold hope that the dam removals upriver can be safely dismantled and the fish can return safely to their sacred spawning grounds. I have hope for Chuam because of the incredible efforts on behalf of the local Fish and Wildlife Hatchery and the Klamath's Ambidopters facility. Their co-stewardship on this and their communication together on the efforts to get this fish back to a healthy level is an example that we should all appreciate and encourage. So with every heartache, there's also hope. Good luck to the Chuam and to all who are involved with its recovery. Kagasakung, everyone. We'll talk to you soon. Don, can you describe what the Chuam celebrations and potlucks were like that your ancestors had? Yeah, that's an interesting story to a lady by the name of Clarice Lotches. She just blurted out one day in our language recovery class, and she was a Klamath language speaker. And she noted that we have biologists, we have a hatchery research station and facility, and we have attorneys. We're filing litigation to try to protect the fish from going extinct. And she said, but you guys need to do first things first. And that is to do the ceremony that we hadn't conducted for over 50 years, the return of Chuam ceremony where we would come together, and before we could even catch the fish, uh, you would have to perform this this ceremony. And basically, you would uh, come together before Creator, and five men conducted this survey, uh, this ceremony, and the, it was culminated in cremating a male and female of each of the fish. It was almost mm-hmm. like Old Testament's first fruits offering, is how, mm-hmm. how referred to. And we'd actually cut out the gall of the fish and place that in the ground and pray for the fish to return. When we reinstituted that ceremony in 1969, I was blessed to have been asked to be a part of that. It's not just a subsistence fish. It's, it's culturally important. We're taught the importance of stewardship and take only what we need and use all that we take. But when I was struggling with my place in our community and being a mixed blood tribal member, I just took her to the fish and she would just talk. She'd talk about my family, and I just learned 
what would be important. I learned a, a traditional world just from taking fish to her and to elders. And with it, I was affirmed as a part of our community, recognized as a tribal hunter and fisher like my father. And she'd tell me about my family. And she never did say, I'm going to teach you something, Sonny. It's more like the time I spent with her sharing those fish with her and other elders and sharing deer and, and other things with our people. That cultural exchange really helped to build my character. And uh, so when we did it and helped me to become the person that I am today, helped me to eventually be elected as a chairman, having that traditional background and and, uh, and understanding and affirmation. Because I was struggling as a young boy, teenager. I didn't know, am I native or non-native or half-breed? What's my place? And uh, she just affirmed that to me. In fact, that was one of the things she said, that we need to have a naming ceremony and, 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 and not only a feast, and conduct a ceremony and pray for the people in all the directions. Thank our Creator for everything that He provided for us. We should have that naming ceremony. When we reinstituted that ceremony, she gave me my Klamath name, and my Klamath name's Ditchik Yonk. Ditchy means good. I knew what Ditchy meant, but I wasn't sure about Pyonk. And she mm-hmm. said, you, your name means lives good, because I was still struggling and getting my life together. She gave me a name that I could live up to. And, uh, that's cool. That's why I always think it's helpful to share this, because we survived the ages because of those fish, and uh, we honored the ceremony. And even the place where we have been conducting the ceremony, just upstream of that, to show you how important the ceremony is, there's a legend where Kamukums turned the living creatures into stone after not observing the ceremony and catching and playing with the fish in the river. You can actually go to a point up from the old Chilicon Dam here, and you can look down and you can actually see a rock formation that's flat on the top. And then you can actually see the silhouettes of all these animals that were turned mm-hmm. into stone as Creator confronted them one by one. Were you catching and playing with the fish before you honored the ceremony? And they just almost sound like uh, Adam and Eve's story. He asked them no what the answer was. And when they denied it, he turned them to, to stone. So that basically mm-hmm. taught our people the importance of really recognizing uh, the Creator placed everything there for us, and we have this responsibility to be stewards, and we have to do things in the right way. That's why it's so deeply important to us. I've heard the fish referred to as being sacred. The reason they're sacred is because Creator placed them here. Creator's sacred. And, And in a sense, we're even sacred people because you created us with a place and purpose, and it was intentional. Those are the things that just permeate our legends and culture and tradition. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that. Thanks. I appreciate it. What would an ideal future look like for this fish and your descendants and kind of their connections to these fish? Having them recover to harvestable levels. And we know it took, took quite a bit of change and quite a bit of past management to get us to this point. But there is hope we can uh, reconnect those diked and drained wetlands. They won't immediately become wetland-type habitat because after being farmed for so long or used for agriculture, there's been this recedence. So if you re- reflood it, we don't have the depths to support some of the native wetland vegetation. Then also stabilizing the, the erosion that, and the sediments that come out from the Sprague River and some of these other places. But there is a need to even 
uh, restore the structure and function of the Sprague River that was diked to dry it out for agricultural purposes. So it's glorified irrigation ditches in some of the places instead of a natural sinuous river that not only provided it provided habitat to and helped the water to be cooler because it was narrow and lined with native vegetation and so there's significant change that's happened but we have a hope that some of these significant restoration projects that we do can affect the water quality and quantity and improve things for the suckers and suckers have, are a little bit lower on the priority or even understanding of their importance in the end of the ecosystem. As some people, salmon is a no-brainer. Everybody's familiar with salmon. So yeah, there's suckers a, there's are so a, cool, though. Yeah. yeah. But when you're trying to improve things for the salmon that are going to return after the dams are out, you're also improving things that are going to benefit the suckers. So there's a lot of need to do restoration work. It's been some serious tinkering with this system and landscape. Yeah. And hopefully oh everybody gosh. will be on the same page and think of it as a landscape need, landscape mm -hmm. restoration on private, federal, and state land. If we can get everybody on the same page and doing the right things, that'll make a big difference. Yeah, I think our goal as Fish and Wildlife Service is one day to have the species delisted to allow sustainable harvest and for us to no longer have to augment the population through a hatchery program. We don't want our hatchery to be something that we have to do forever. The goal is not for it to be something that lasts indefinitely. It's until we can get these populations to where they're self-sustained. Perfect. I'm curious real quick. I know we're getting close to time here, but we haven't talked about a lot of places where you have people who have relied both on salmon and on suckers to a large degree. And of course, we know in the Western culture, Salmon are regarded really highly as a food fish and suckers, not so much to say the least. So I'm curious, just historically, when you could harvest both salmon and suckers, how are the two viewed and compared to one another? I, I came across some articles we printed December 31st, 1999, before Y2K. And one of the articles said suckers, I think they actually call it mullet, which is, an, even though they weren't a true mullet, mm -hmm. a lot calling a mullet. I think it said mullet, a favorite of Indians and white men. And basically the whole article was interviewing non-native people and they were talking about how wonderful the suckers were and they even referred to them as they preferred them over salmon and all those kind of things. Sounds great. And there is uh, accounts of our people trading salmon for beef. The salmon that was caught clear up in in the Sprague River system near Beatty and Spring Creek there. And so there was, and then we have a lot of quotes from our tribal elders that were around before the dam was put in and salmon was lost. So we relied on all of them, but the suckers became more important after salmon were extirpated from the area. And uh, so they're both important and they're all a part of what should be here in the system. So they're all important in our support for the other tribes that fish. We're blessed too. We have friends from Warm Springs that catch fish on their tissues and come down and serve it at our gatherings and so forth. So we're blessed that way too. But it's something that people that want to have again. Yeah. Hopefully you mentioned the dam removals and that there's got to be a lot of habitat restoration that comes on. It's not just removing the dams, but hopefully that gets salmon and steelhead back up to you pretty soon. I hope. Yep. Yeah. I hope these fish come back for y'all. Perfect. Thank you guys right. both. I really appreciate yeah. you coming on. Thank you so yeah. much. Thanks Great. so much Thanks. for having us.
Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity. All right, we'll get out there and enjoy all the fish, especially all the suckers of the Klamath Basin. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebeck, and my co-host is Guy Euro. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Region Office of Communications. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Racecar. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish. 